0: Welcome to the Vitamin SC3 Podcast. You're listening to the Essential RX segment hosted by Dr. Lamitra Scott. The Sickle Cell Community Consortium powers the Vitamin SC3 Podcast. Please remember that the information you hear on the Vitamin SC3 Podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. The information shared is not to be used as medical advice or consultations with healthcare professionals. Stay tuned to hear the full episode. To become a member of the Sickle Cell Community Consortium, visit sicklecellconsortium.org. The Sickle Cell Consortium is a collaborative designed a little bit like the United Nations in theory so that we can bring together many organizations for sickle cell throughout the country and now throughout the world as well as um, independent patient caregiver leaders, opinion leaders, advocates, those that are active in this space. And our goal is, and what we've always done, is bring our community together so that we can create projects, priorities, initiatives. We can figure out what are the problems, needs, and gaps in the simple cell community, and then figure out how we're going to collectively address them. Good afternoon, everybody. Today, we have a special guest joining us today. We have Dr. Lindsay Dyer from the University of Arkansas Medical School, who's joining us today. And we are going to talk about something that's near and dear to our heart as pharmacists, and that is uh, related to vaccines and immunizations. Dr. Dyer received her PharmD degree from the University of Arkansas Medical Sciences College of Pharmacy in Little Rock, Arkansas. She completed a PGY1 pharmacy practice residency at the University Hospital in Little Rock in 2009, and she obtained her board certification in ambulatory care in 2011. Dr. Dyer is an associate professor and director of health system rotations for the University of Arkansas Medical School College of Pharmacy experiential program. She also develops ACPE-accredited continuing education program for pharmacists and other health professionals. Additionally, she serves as the clinical pharmacist in the state's only adult sickle cell disease clinic. So with that, I, I said a mouthful, but that is awesome. And I want to welcome Dr. Dyer to our conversation today as we talk about immunizations and vaccination as it relates to the sickle cell community. Right now, we are in what we call the cough and cold Flu season, in addition to still being in the midst of the COVID um, virus and, and new formulations of that virus beginning to circulate, so I thought it was very pertinent to have a segment dedicated specifically to um, vaccines and immunizations that are most beneficial for the sickle cell community. So, Dr. Dyer, just want to say welcome, and you know, give you a, a moment to share a little bit about yourself, if you like, before we jump in.
1: Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. I'm glad that um, you know we met. Dr. Scott and I met a few months ago at a, a sickle cell talk, and so we've we've uh, kind of kept in touch. And so I'm very happy to be here. Um, excited to be here and and talk about vaccines with you.
0: All right. First, let's get let's just get into you know why is this even important to the sickle cell community? Um, we know that when Children are born with sickle cell disease. Oftentimes they have to start medications very early on in life, sometimes within the first uh, two to three months of life. Can you elaborate on why that is so important to start medications that early on in life?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, with our our kiddos, you know, they... um, they, and I don't know if you want to talk about this too a little bit, Mm -hmm. but they have a higher risk of infection um, because a lot of it's related to um, their spleen. So Mm -hmm. a lot of kids will have either spleens that aren't working the right way or have had to have those removed. And that, that is an organ that helps, helps us um, kind of fight off infection. Um, And so, I don't know if you had anything specific. Yeah,
0: that's well, what you bring up a good point by saying it helps to fight off infection. It's two infections specifically. Um, children and infants are at high risk for septicemia and meningitis in that very young childhood period. So that's one of the very main reasons why uh, prophylactic antibiotics are recommended for that child population. And when you talk about the spleen not functioning, sometimes in sickle cell disease, uh, the cells begin to sickle. And when they do that, know they can block blood flow. And when they block blood flow to the spleen, that is actually what causes the spleen to begin to um, decrease its function because it's no longer receiving that blood supply that it needs in order to function appropriately. So as a result, the spleen is not able to filter out the bacteria and other things that could cause infection as efficiently as it should, as it should, and as a result, it puts that patient at an increased risk, and that's what's called uh, the patient is immunocompromised. And it really doesn't take a long time for that process to take place. Sometimes, as early as the first year of life, the child's spleen. May be present, but because of the repeated cycling, uh, the repeated cycling or sickling of the red blood cells, that organ function has now become diminished. So that's why it's so important very early on. That the children are taking their prophylactic antibiotics to kind of prevent them from getting these bacterial in infections, and pneumococcal virus is or pneumococcal bacteria, I'm sorry, is one of the main ones that's responsible for high mortality rates that are seen within the the early childhood years. So, if you think back into sickle cell disease history, and we look at the the mortality rate uh, very early on. People with sickle cell disease, they really didn't make it until that 18 year old age frame. So I don't know, a lot of people think of sickle cell disease, well, this is somebody who, you know, passed away prematurely because they got some type of infection. Well, that was very true. And it was all, you know, kind of related to the strep pneumo bacteria. So back in the the late 80s, um, it was discovered that penicillin actually helped to increase the survival rate of children. So therefore they made it beyond the age frame of one to five and they were actually able to live and thrive at least to be, you know, a young adult age. Once we get to the young adult age, there were some different issues that were present, but at least during those early childhood years, science has shown that a child taking prophylactic penicillin or an alternative, if the child is allergic to penicillin, Actually allows that child um, to have protection against a strep pneumo uh, bacteria. So that's first and foremost why it's so important for your young children to be taking prophylactic antibiotics in addition to uh, the regular uh, vaccinations or childhood vaccinations that are due for all children um, that have sickle cell disease. Yeah. So, that.
1: Well, and kind of what you were saying about that um, back in the 80s, so one of those, the big study really showed, um, I mean, a huge decrease, 84% decrease in the incidence of these kids getting um, uh, that pneumococcal bacterial infection. And then with the incidence that fell from mortality or death rates um, was also huge. And they actually... When they were looking at this study back then in the 80s, they had to stop it early because they just knew how much of a benefit this was for kids to be able to receive um, penicillin. Um, So it was a a big deal and, um, you know, a huge change in our way we treated and and prevented um, infection for these kids. Um, and then kind of going on with that too, um, they looked at, well, how long does a kid need to be on, um, take penicillin? Um, and so when the, the pneumococcal vaccine was approved in, I think 2000, um, they were able to look at, to see, you know, could we stop, um, the oral penicillin? And they were, they did see that, you know, Hey, we can, we can stop this as long as the kids have had. Um, all of their their pneumococcal vaccines um, at age five, or you know, there was a couple other things that they looked at too, like if kids had had a, a really um, bad infection or had had their spleen removed, those kids may need to continue penicillin later. But for the most part, once they received their vaccines, um, they could stop that oral penicillin at five. Um, so that was a big deal um, for kids.
0: Right. So I know that there are some parents that may not have understood exactly why the child should be on penicillin. And then we have those people that say that, you know, giving your child penicillin or giving them antibiotics every day, it, it makes them more susceptible to other organisms or from other bacterial infections. And just based on the, the science and the studies, that is not something that has been seen. Just because a child takes penicillin every day, if another infection comes up, where they would need to have penicillin, there are alternatives that can be utilized to still target that particular infection and not have to worry about, you know, penicillin not working or not having an option available to treat said condition because they were taking penicillin every day. So I just want people to understand the importance of why the penicillin is necessary, especially in those early childhood years, what's actually going on in the body to create a condition where you would even need to have penicillin. And uh, especially, I want to say from the the pharmacist standpoint and counseling on taking penicillin or taking any antibiotics for that matter, typically you would want to have them with food because sometimes antibiotics can cause you to feel a little bit nauseated. And that's something that can be um, avoided by just not taking the medication on an empty stomach. Or sometimes you can see, you can expect or to have some type of of diarrhea, not to say that all people will have it, but sometimes that is something that comes up about because of the way that antibiotics do have an impact on your uh, gastrointestinal system. So those are some things to kind of watch out for just to to expect and not to think that because you took this medicine and then these things happen, that something was wrong. That's not necessarily the case of what's going on. I will put in the caveat, though, if a person is allergic to penicillin, that is not a time that you want to test or you know, to continue a therapy. And when I say if you're allergic, not necessarily breaking out in a rash, but if you are allergic to the point where your throat starts to swell or your lips start to swell and you have trouble breathing, that is a true um, medication allergy. And it's, all, it's classified in a category where we call it an anaphylaxis type reaction. So that is a situation where penicillin is not the medication for you, but there are alternatives that can provide that same coverage against that strep pneumobacteria that can be taken in place of penicillin. So I think we've talked about penicillin um, enough to the point where people kind of understand what's really going on. Now I want to get into the whole vaccine piece. And I know you talked about um, starting uh, the pneumococcal vaccine at the age of five. What are some additional vaccines that may not necessarily be on the standard um, childhood immunization schedule that people with sickle cell disease really do need to get? So,
1: I'm glad you asked. Um, Another one of those is what we call the meningococcal shots or meningococcal vaccines. Um, So, meningococcal disease um, comes from bacteria that um, for kids, especially those, again, with, um, you know, haven't had a spleen removed or a spleen that isn't functioning or working like it should – and they are higher risk for having some of these, um, bacterial infections. And these are really serious, um, infections that can cause, um, blood infections or infections around the brain or the spinal cord. Um, it can really cause, you know, it can increase death rates. It can cause long-term disabilities, um, if, um, a kid, um, gets this bacterial infection. And so for these kids, we, um, can start given one of the vaccines, um, as early as, uh, two months. Um, and it's what we call a series, which means they use, they would get more than one. Um, and then, um, and then they would get it again after they're an adult. So when they become 19, which I know, I think we'll talk about that later. Um, and then whenever there's, there's a couple different strains of this bacteria. So there's, um, what we call like a B, a serogroup B, which has its own vaccine that targets that. And that one, um, kids would get a little bit later. So whenever they're at least age 10 or older, they can start getting that vaccine. Whereas the other meningococcal vaccine covers several different types of bacteria, um, that are, um, have been known for causing those childhood illnesses. Um, and so they, you know, typically, you know, as with anything, I know I'm bad about sometimes I'll try to Google things and side effects, but for the most part, this is um, a well-tolerated vaccine. I mean, kids, you know, you may have some soreness where you get the shot, um, a little redness. Um, sometimes, um, our bodies can kind of, um, react in a way that we may have a look like a low grade fever, but it's, but it's not in an infection caused by the vaccine like you're not getting a fever because of the vaccine just more of your body saying oh you know you've just given me something that's making my making my immune system kind of cr- crank up and start working better um so um you know they're again they're they're pretty well tolerated
0: I'm glad you said that uh, about the immune system cranking up a lot of people may not really understand what's going on and the the purpose of why and how vaccines even work. So when a person gets a vaccine and this is um, your body's way of recognizing something that is foreign, so your body begins to develop antibodies to what is injected into it. And these antibodies are basically like your body's memory system and it's being coded into the long-term memory. So in the event that you see this particular bacteria again in the future, then your body will recognize it and say, hey, we've seen this before. We have an immune response to attack this particular bacteria so that it doesn't overcome our body. So in order to get all of that protection, though, your body has to mount this immune response. So all the cells that are responsible um, for your immune system, basically. So when we talk about your white blood cells um, beginning to amplify your uh, T cell B cell memory cells that remember what you what your body has seen. So all of this mounts that immune response to the the vaccine that's being injected and as a result you may get a low grade fever or you know something to that effect. This is just you know your body is working as it should to create that protection that you will need at some point in time in the future. So outside of the meningococcal one Is there anything else that's kind of different for, from the standard?
1: So I'm going to mention this one. It's, it's pretty, it is recommended for kids without sickle cell disease. um, But it is specifically mentioned for sickle cell disease as well. So I just wanted to to mention Mm -hmm. it. Um, It's Haemophilus influenza. So it's another bacteria. Again, this is a vaccine that is recommended for all kids. Um, but um, again, with um, patients with sickle cell disease, just have a higher risk of of, of getting um, certain bacterial infections. So before, so this one actually before it there was a vaccine for it, it was the leading cause of meningitis in kids. Um, so this vaccine is, is a very um, important vaccine, I think, for all kids to receive. But just kind of wanted to mention that as a um, uh, specifically for sickle cell disease just because of our of the increased risk for, for bacterial infections.
0: So when we talk about a, a flu vaccine, and I know it comes around every year, and some people take it, some people don't. But we just want everybody to understand that just because you get a flu vaccine, that does not mean you are getting flu um, or you, they're injecting you with the flu. That's not what that literally means. It means, again, that you're getting a vaccine where your body can mount an immune response to it so that when you are exposed to it at some point in time in the future, you have antibodies that can attack it so that you don't succumb to uh, whatever said bacterial infection is. That's important because in sickle cell disease, it's not just, you know, even with a common cold, it's not just, you know, we got a common cold. It's a common cold that can escalate into other things, all because of the way that this bacteria may have an impact on the body itself, and the sickle the, the sickle cells inside of a person's body, it makes them very vulnerable to change. So, at any point in time where you have a situation where you have uh, decreases in oxygen because of, let's say, whatever bacteria that you have, it's causing you to have some respiratory symptoms, which causes a stressor on your body because you're trying to fight this bacterial infection. And now it's it's kind of like that snowball process begins. And you can find yourself in a hospital for an extended period of time off of something that started from just maybe a mild cold or something that you consider, well, it was the flu, but you didn't think it would be that bad. It can really escalate. So that's why it's so important in sickle cell disease to try to be as preventive as possible. Um, And that prevention, it lies in, of course, getting your vaccination, but also doing things that you can do outside of vaccinations as it relates to, um, one, washing your hands, staying away, you know, as much as you can from people who are sick. Um, Again, because the immune system for a person who has sickle cell disease is not as robust. So you would want to do things that you can that's within your control to reduce your risk of contracting some infection from another person as much as possible. So I wanna talk about now, um uh, I guess we can talk about COVID vaccine because I know that's another hot topic. Unless is are there some more that we need to talk about before we get to COVID for well, the adult population that we need to, to talk about as it relates to sickle cell. Well I
1: did just wanna add something with the flu vaccine. Um and as, you know, I know you guys probably all know this but you know every year there's a new flu vaccine um and that's kind of you know with viral with viral infections the the people that make the vaccine they're kind of they're doing their best work to figure out which strains of the virus will be the most prevalent and so that's kind of how they decide to come up with the flu vaccine that you get every fall um and so i did want to make a point you know just to say um you know, we, we want, we, we encourage, we think it's, you know, I get the flu vaccine. I hope that I don't get the flu, but mm-hmm. it doesn't always mean that you for sure won't get the flu. But what it can mean if you do get the flu and you've had the vaccine is that, you know, hopefully your um, symptoms that you have from the flu won't be as bad, you know, hopefully you won't get the flu. That's ideal. But if you do, the goal is also to prevent really serious illness from the flu vaccine. So I think that's important to mention as well.
0: I agree. And I'm glad you brought that up because it does transition now into um, talking about COVID vaccine. We've talked about that over the past year and a half or so. And even now with some people that say, well, I've got my Um, COVID vaccine, and I've got my boosters, and I still got COVID. Well, what was the purpose of me getting the vaccine to begin with? Well, just as Dr. Dyer just said, when you get vaccines, it's not to say that for without a shadow of a doubt, 100%, you will never get um, this particular infection. What it does say, though, is that if you were just so happened to get it, that your outcomes would not land you in the hospital or even death to that degree. So when we talk about a person whose immune system is already compromised, you would want to arm yourself with everything possible to try to prevent any infection and subsequently any resultant hospitalization. So I would put that in in context when we talk about COVID and people ask the question of why should I get a COVID vaccine? As far as the the CDC guidelines go and recommendations go, I would suggest that you follow those and the advice of your healthcare provider, because I know everybody's situation is different and it may not be time for them to receive a COVID vaccine. But as long as your provider has given you the go-ahead to get your vaccination and you are within the, the realms of what the CDC requirements are for your particular population, I think that it would behoove everyone to go ahead and make sure that they are as protected as they can be to try to prevent death. And if you look at the death rates now regarding COVID versus the death rates that we had back in early 2020, the numbers are drastically different. And those numbers are different because of vaccinations. So the more people that are able to be vaccinated, then the less likely you are to succumb to um mortality or, you know, the the effects of the COVID or any uh, infection for that matter, as long as you you have your vaccines on board. That doesn't, you know, take away any of the other complications that can develop, you know, from being infected. So that's why you want to make sure that you have your protection on board as much as you can to kind of prevent secondary complications that may result from a bacterial infection. So with that being said, did you have anything to add uh, as it as relates to COVID and what we were talking about?
1: I don't think so. Not yet. I think we'll have a lot to talk about with, with the COVID vaccines.
0: Well, as far as that goes, um, in, in regards to COVID vaccine or flu vaccine, some people will say, well, I got my flu shot or I got a COVID shot today. And then on Friday, I tested positive for either flu or, or COVID. Can you speak to that point? Like, how is it that you can get a flu vaccine or a COVID vaccine today and then, you know, Friday you still get it? What's that all about?
1: Yeah, so that's something that I've heard a lot as well. And, I mean, it's a real concern for people that, you know, feel like that they can, you know, that, it is, that they could catch the flu from the flu virus or COVID from the COVID virus. And we already kind of spoke a little bit about how your body may... Um, React to the vaccine and kind of cranking up your immune system and bringing in, you know, all these different things in your body that make it, um, I guess, your immune system get ready to be able to fight off these infections. And part of that sometimes is that it can cause um, a fever or, you know, you could be sore. But it's, but these vaccines, so the, the flu shot, um, and we'll talk about, um, there is, you know, one called a flu mist, which is which is different, but the flu vaccine that you would get as a shot, um, the COVID vaccines, those are all what we call inactivated vaccines, which means they cannot cause the virus or the flu or the or COVID. Um, however, you know that doesn't mean that you, if you um, get the vaccine, number one, you could have been infected previously prior to getting the vaccine and not had any symptoms yet. Or, and with these vaccines, they can take, you know, I think they say, what about probably two weeks to get, to be
0: um, fully uh, immunized, right?
1: Yeah. Fully immunized after getting, where, which means you, you could fight off the infection or um, I don't want to say necessarily be immune because again, we already talked about how you could still catch the virus, but um, it takes that two weeks to kind of be where you are able to fight it off better. Um, so if you catch the virus in between that time after you've been vaccinated, um, then you, you know, you can still catch the virus. And actually that happened to me. So when these were first, um, I could first get the vaccine back in, I think I got mine in, was it 2019, the end of 2019 when they first came available, I believe. So I- 2020,
0: I think 2019 is when we first kind of heard about it. 2020, the the break of 2020- is when it was all
1: together. out. So, <laughs> so December right. of 2020, we went on mm-hmm. a, we went hiking with my family and rode in the car together. Um, and I, the next day I got my vaccine, my first vaccine. And then the next day found out that one of my family members had tested, had started having symptoms, went and got tested. They were positive. And so I started quarantining and sure enough, and at that point I'd only received one vaccine, but I had been exposed the day before I received my vaccine. And sure enough, about Mm -hmm. a week later, I started having symptoms. So, um, you know, that definitely can happen where you don't know that you're exposed and you get the vaccine or you get um, exposed within that two week period after getting the vaccine. Um, So that's pretty, that's not an uncommon thing. Um, but I think it's something that makes you know. A lot of okay. people sometimes may think, "Oh man, I, that caused the 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 infection," when actually it wasn't caused by the vaccine. So I think that's an important thing just for everybody to kind of know that it you can actually get it even after you've been um, vaccinated.
0: So <laughs> right, and that's one of the more reasons I think it's uh, so important for people to practice. You know safe hygiene and, you know, hand washing. And uh, again, just staying away from people that are sick as much as you can. And um, just, you know, being protective of your own self, because I know you can't control what everybody else does, but you can control what you do in terms of trying to keep your immune system up. So with that respect, I want to kind of shift our conversation now and talk about certain things that I know people do. Um, to try to ward off the pain that may be experienced from being vaccinated. I know we talked about there was some uh, muscle soreness or your arm may be sore if that's the spot where you received your vaccination. And I know that some people may opt to do kind of like Tylenol or an ibuprofen before they get vaccinated. Do you have any any leeway on that? I know from my perspective in in doing that, it kind of, it's a negative and a positive. So it cancels out what your body is trying to do in terms of mount this immune response, especially if you're taking something like uh, ibuprofen, which is anti-inflammatory. If you take that before you become vaccinated, then you kind of blunt the effects that your body is trying to mount in creating this immune response. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I've heard that too, and I, you know, I honestly I don't know the stats on if that can actually um, how much it decreases the effect of the vaccine. I mean, you know, definitely if you start having symptoms of you know being extra sore or fever after you receive your vaccine, I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's okay at that point to start to take, you know. Tylenol, or if you need an anti-inflammatory, because at that point your body's already kind of starting to to work and and fight and build up these immune, you know, antibodies against the virus and stuff like that. So I think that that's fine because we definitely we'd rather you get the vaccine um, and you know have to take some medicine to help kind of ward off some of those you know negative short term symptoms that you may have from the vaccine than to not get the vaccine. Um, right, do you right. agree kind of with that? or
0: Yeah, I agree with after afterwards. It's kind of like how some people will take something with the anticipation of something is going to happen, but that something has not even happened yet. So that's the <laughs> way I think about the vaccine. Yes, because it was funny when I used to work um, in retail pharmacy, I used to do flu shots all the time. And I used to pride myself on saying that I give the flu shots that don't hurt because people would, they would get ready. They would sit in my chair. I would give them the shot and I'd be like, okay, it's done now. They're like, you're done. I didn't even feel it. I was like, that's because I give the shots that don't hurt. (laughs) (laughs) So then it's kind of like you just wait until the, the symptoms occur or you wait until you start to feel something, at least. By waiting, you allow your body to do what it is naturally going to do anyway in regard to mounting this immune response. So yeah, afterwards, I would say if you've got something going on, then you can use some over-the-counter pain relievers to kind of help out. And then I want to talk about, um, we're talking about prevention here. Things that people can do independently as it relates to what you eat. Your exercise, making sure that you stay hydrated. We know in sickle cell disease, of course, hydration is key to everything and as far as prevention. It begins with making sure that the person is adequately hydrated. But as far as what you eat, I know a lot of people um, look to more whole foods, more um, vegetables and fruits. All that stuff is very important when it comes to um, increasing your immune system and what your body is able to do in sickle cell disease the person needs more so more of those nutrients more so than the average person who does it because the body is constantly in a state of trying to replenish and make more red blood cells because of the sickling and the hemolysis that's taking place so do you want to add anything to what are some things that you could do independently of you know being vaccinated and taking those type medications to prevent being sick What are some other things just from a a natural standpoint that you think people could do?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, definitely um, staying on top of annual um, physical, seeing your Mm -hmm. primary care doctor, I mean, you know, once a year at least to get your baseline labs checked and, you know, other comorbidities like high blood pressure and things that, um, you know, may be related to sickle cell disease or may not be related to sickle cell disease, those things, you know, can actually um, impact someone's response to how they, you know, if they get sick, if they get a bacterial infection or a virus, how they are going to respond to those to those viruses. Um, and so, you know, being, you know, like, like Dr. Scott mentioned, eating healthy and eating things that are clean for your body, um, all of those things can be... Helpful in and um, making you know healthier choices for your body that can in turn impact how you respond if you if you do get an infection because we can't completely live in a bubble we're you know we're you know but we can take measures to hopefully decrease our risk um, when we're out in public and and just doing our daily living um, that that help us
0: respond better for those vac- for those viruses and stuff. I like the fact that you said people need to make sure that they see their PCP. I think we need to repeat that part again. (laughs) Make sure that you have an annual checkup with your PCP. They want to see you. They really, really do. And you really want to see them as well. And I say that because... Yes, you see your sickle cell, hopefully you see your sickle cell doc, your doctor or hematologist that helps you manage your sickle cell disease, but you are a total complete person and you are more than just a person who has sickle cell disease. So sometimes things like hypertension, you don't even know that you have hypertension because it can creep up silently and you don't even know that it's taking place. But when you have hypertension or high blood pressure, that can definitely impact how sickle cell disease um, affects your body. And that's something that you really want to stay ahead of as much as possible. Because as we all know, with sickle cell disease, we want the, the blood vessels to be as relaxed as possible so that those cells can flow through freely. And anytime you have high blood pressure, that means you're going to make that condition a little bit harder Because of the pressure that's inside the blood vessels, it's going to be harder for those blood cells to get through. And you really want to stay on top of if you have hypertension or hypertension is developing, because that's a serious complication that um, can impact sickle cell disease. In addition to that, making sure that you get your cholesterol levels checked. These are things that creep up on you. And by the time it's diagnosed, it's after something traumatic has typically taken place. So when we talk about cholesterol, that is impacted by your diet and the things that you eat. So making sure that you stay away from as much as you can fried and fatty foods, because those are the things that deposit buildup into your your vessels. And again, whatever you are, Whenever you create a situation that impedes blood flow or that slows down blood flow, then you increase the risk of having a sickle cell pain episode just because those cells can't flow through as easily. So making sure that you see your primary care doctor, this is true for um, children and adults. The children need to go see the pediatrician um, at their regularly scheduled intervals and just to make sure that the child is growing appropriately, and that no other underlying conditions are present, in addition to the adults, and you know, making sure that you're as proactive as you can be and preventive in handling uh, potential healthcare issues.
1: Yeah, and um, I think it's a, a yeah, it's just a good thing, a good, and it's for everybody, but especially for those with sickle cell disease, I think it's extra important um, just to have that, those connections and those relationships with, and then that way you can feel comfortable talking with your doctor and, you know, and, and asking them those types of questions.
0: I agree. So again, I think as we uh, wrap up our conversation here about why it's so important to be vaccinated, uh, to get immunizations To ensure that you're doing your best to protect yourself and, you know, in all ways possible, taking control of the things that you have control over. I think that following these just basic principles and guidelines can definitely um, help you navigate through this uh, winter season that we are embarking upon in a more positive fashion. And I know um, I have to address those people who feel like vaccinations are not the go to and this is not something that is for them and at the end of the day we want everybody to understand that you all have choices about what you choose to do with your health the purpose of this conversation is to provide you with an educational background of why certain things are recommended versus others you know may not be recommended and allowing you to be able to make informed decisions for those people who you know are all of the opinion that you know vaccinations are just not for me. We did talk about natural ways in which you know people can try to help boost their immune system as much as you can. And again, that's by making sure that your diet um is intact, making sure that, you know, of course you get exercise and staying hydrated and seeing your PCP to ensure that other health conditions that could impact sickle cell disease are not silently creeping up. So with that, I, I would like to say thank you again, Dr. Dyer, for joining us today. And um, I encourage you all to, um, again, make an appointment with your PCP, get your flu vaccination, get your COVID vaccination, stay on top of any immunizations that are appropriate um, per CDC guidelines and that you should receive. At whatever stage that you are in, and I wish you all the best and you know a, a well winter season.
1: Thank you very much, and I'm happy to be here again. I appreciate the the time. So,
0: oh, and one more thing, Doctor Dayer. if somebody wants to reach out to you, where are you? How can they get in contact with you?
1: Yes. Um, so, do you just is my email fine? Is that what is that? Yeah, that email be good... is fine good. uh Yes, email is perfect. Okay, um, it is L as in Lindsay, E D as in dog, A Y E R at UAMS dot
0: edu. So yeah, happy to help. That's awesome. So if you if you're in the Arkansas area and you are looking for a sickle cell clinic or a place where you can get some assistance in handling your sickle cell care, please reach out to Dr. Dayer and she will and her team will definitely get you connected. So, until the next time, we will see you all later. Thanks so much for listening to the Vitamin SC3 podcast. We hope that you will leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Remember, a new episode is coming out next Monday. So please tune in and enjoy.